dive into the heart of the Syrian civil war on insurgency unmasked by the modern insurgent. Explore the historical legacy, geopolitical complexities and human impact of the Syrian civil war. From expert insights to gripping narratives, this podcast offers an in-depth understanding of the conflict. Come and journey through the Syrian civil war with the modern insurgent. Welcome to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked from the Modern Insurgent. Today, we're here with Alex McKeever. So, to start off with, Alex, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself and who you are? Yeah, um, well, thanks for having me. Um, I am a researcher and I do a lot of open source stuff covering, I've been focused on Syria for years now. Um, And I currently, work part-time for Syrians for Truth and Justice, a uh, Syrian human rights organization, uh, working on their investigative reports. And then I also run a Substack where I cover weekly events from Northern Syria. I've been looking through your Substack and doing a bit of research for this episode and fascinating stuff that you do. Really interesting. Appreciate it. Uh, And so, so yeah, today we're going to be focusing on the SDF. So, could you provide like a brief overview of the kind of formation and evolution of the SDF? How did they become what they are? Okay, so the SDF, it stands for Syrian Democratic Forces. It's a coalition of Kurdish, Arab, uh, Syriac, Christian, and, and other ethnic groups that are present in northern Syria. Um, it's the primary military force uh, that controls northeastern Syria. And um, so it's, it's one of the, the three or four main actors on the ground within Syria. Uh, yeah, they've definitely been in the news a lot over the last, say, 12 years since or since 2015 when they were formed. But the issue itself has been at the forefront of the news, really. So how they are a mainly Kurdish force with obviously the smaller minorities as well. How do, how is their relationship with other other Kurdish groups in the region? Um, so it's contentious um, with a lot of. So when you talk about Kurdish politics, um, you know we're talking about uh, within across the borders of Turkey, uh, Iraq, Iran, and Syria, and the most uh, powerful factor or faction is the uh, Kurdish Democratic Party, which is the main power in Iraqi Kurdistan, which, you know, has had uh, a form of autonomy since 2003, formal, formally recognized autonomy since 2003, and is also quite influential because it is sort of the oldest legacy party. Uh, it's run by the Barzani family, and the Barzanis have been uh, active within the Kurdish nationalist movement since, I guess, the, I don't, no, specifically since the 40s, since the 30s. Um, so that's sort of the one, the main actor. Um, and then you have the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, uh, which is also, which is active across um, these four countries and is really sort of the main competition with the Barzanis in terms of intra-Kurdish nationalist uh, politics. Um, then you have the, the secondary party within Iraqi Kurdistan, the PUK, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. Um, there's going to be a lot of acronyms here. Yeah. Um, and they um, are 
competitors with the Barzani's, with the KDP. Um, so over uh, the last 40 years or so, they've had uh, decent relationships with uh, the PKK and with various PKK linked groups. Um, and so in Syria, the, the, the political party that's most closely linked to the SDF is the PYD, the uh, unit, what is it, uh, Democratic Union Party or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, yeah. And uh, the PYD was formed by, uh, well, okay, this is, maybe we should get into um, a little bit more background in terms of uh, Kurdish politics within Syria and mm. sort of the, the lineage of the SDF. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Kurds make up about 10% of uh, the Syrian population. Um, they are primarily primarily reside within along the, the northern border um, in roughly three different regions um, that are commonly referred to as the Jazeera, Kobani, and then Afrin. Um, and then they reside also, there's Kurdish neighborhoods within Aleppo and also within Damascus. Um, yeah, so uh, since independence, and especially since the 50s, the, uh, the Syrian government's been uh, rather nationalist, uh, Arab nationalist uh, in scope. So this has meant that uh, Kurds have had a hard time finding political representation and cultural rights. Um, so that's been sort of the the raison d'etat or whatever of the uh, the Kurdish movement is trying to secure cultural rights and legal political participation within Syria. And the first Kurdish Nationalist Party was formed in Syria in 1957, and this party was linked to the Barzanis that I mentioned earlier. And yeah, and these the parties, because they were illegal and repressed by the state, um, they often splintered and there's like 30 something parties. Um, some of them are like, you know, a family and hmm. some of them are much uh, bigger, more prominent. Um, so that's sort of the, there's this post-1957 lineage of Kurdish parties. Where the PYD comes in is through the PKK, which entered Syria in 1980, 1979. Um, the PKK was, you know, the uh, Kurdish party and militant group in Turkey. And uh, there was a coup in Turkey in 1980, and a lot of its members fled south to Syria. The Syrian regime, um, it took a couple of years, but eventually developed a relationship with them and uh, came to an understanding where they could operate within Syria as long as they didn't uh, do anything against the uh, the government in Syria and try to you know stir up any um, any unrest there. Um, and for the Syrian regime, it was useful because it had various grievances with Turkey. Uh, one, there was, you know, just within the Cold War context, uh, Turkey's a NATO member. Syria uh, was more aligned with the, the Soviet Union. Um, then you have the issue of water, the, the Euphrates and the, and the Tigris, to a lesser extent, because it's only on the border of Syria, um, come flow from Turkey. And Turkey in the 70s started a, a massive damming project um, throughout the southeast of Turkey. And so both Syria and Iraq have had major grievances with Turkey about water levels. So the regime uh, viewed the PKK as useful in terms of putting pressure on, on Turkey um, as sort of a negotiating tool. And then also it was like a, a good outlet valve for the Kurdish population where they could, um, you know, uh, through the PKK, uh, 
they were given so a little bits of sort of uh, unofficial cultural autonomy. They could volunteer with the organization and then fight the, the Turkish state. Um, and tens of thousands of Syrian Kurds joined the PKK um, since you know the 80s. Uh, and I think there are estimates in the 2000s that about a third of PKK membership uh, was originally from Syria. So it, it became a very um, a powerful and influential actor within Kurdish politics in Syria. Uh, then in 1998, the, the, um, due to Turkish pressure, uh, the, Syria kicked out the PKK and banned the party. And uh, this led to the leader, Abdullah Ajalan, fleeing Syria and then eventually uh, getting arrested uh, by Turkish intelligence in Kenya in 1998 or 1999. Um, so, so, yeah, that was the that was the end of the, the um, PKK, basically, as a, a semi-official actor within Syria. And then in 2003, various um, former PKK activists, like active members within the party, whatever, um, formed the PYD, which is a party that organizationally is linked to the PKK within the broader umbrella uh, structure, the, the uh, is it the KCK? Um, I'm blanking on what it stands for exactly. Communities, Kurdistan, something. It's Council. A big uh, spider web, isn't it? Once you get into the various groups and how they connect with each other, it can get very confusing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so it has these official links, and then ideologically, it's very much uh, based in Abdullah Ajalan's political thought. Um, which initially it, uh, the PKK was a Marxist-Leninist sort of very typical, you know, uh, third worldist kind of, or maybe not third worldist, but active in the third world, these kind of parties throughout the, the 70s and the 80s. Um, after his rest, arrest, um, and he's been in prison um, in, in Turkey ever since, um, he's sort of uh, changed the ideology a bit. It's a bit more anarchist influenced. And this was, it's, it seems to me that in a large part, it was, well, one, he was influenced by specifically Murray Bookchin, but also it was sort of a realization that, you know, this, the Cold War is over. They're not gonna find really state sponsors. Um, they were forced out of Syria. And the idea of, you know, creating a Kurdish state an ind fully independent Kurdish state within Turkey was a little unfeasible. Mm. Um, so instead, the ideology focuses on local democracy, uh, creating these series of, of governing structures on the grounds. And yeah, that, that's a whole other discussion. But so, yeah, the long story short is the PYD is comes from the PKK lineage. It was formed in 2003. It was illegal. Um, it was repressed by the regime alongside the other Kurdish parties. Hmm. And um, so then, yeah, you have the events of uh, 2011. You have the uh, civil uprising of Syrian revolution, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. Um, initially, there was protest activity within Kurdish areas that was um, connected to the broader uh, civilian um, pro protest movement uh, with similar demands about democracy, uh, ending the state of emergency that had been in place for 40 years and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but also with demands about cultural rights within Syria and recognizing Kurds as a national 
minority national ethnic group um, within Syria. And these these protests, the parties were involved with them to some degree. Um, there was also just a lot of like civilians and youth that were sort of sick of the the Kurdish parties because they'd been in, in existence for fifty years and had were mostly just successful in splintering and mm. uh, fighting amongst each other. And yeah, so within that context, the PYD um started you know organizing its own rallies that were basically the uh the PYD's approach to the uprisings and once it developed into actual civil war was to take a it was a third position third way uh etc mm. where they did not side with the opposition um and instead sought to implement their own political uh uh projects and this occurred within the vacuum of um, the the regime pulled out of a lot of Kurdish areas because it, it saw that the main threat was from uh, from areas further in the West, um, Arab populated for the most part, um, and that it, it, it was a tactical withdrawal basically. Mm. And it's maintained small pockets within the two main cities of the Northeast. But, um, but yeah, so with, that gave room for the PYD to create its projects. And um, part of that was the creation of the Yepige and the Yepige, the, the uh, YPG, YPJ, uh, mm. People's Defense Forces that was formed in 2011. Um, that's the, really the backbone of the SDF. And then the parallel all-female YPJ, which was formed, I think, a year or two after. Um, so, yeah, that's a, it's a fundamental part of the, uh, the PYD's projects. You have both the civil and the military. And so, yeah, the the in the early stages of the war, there was fighting between the YPG, YPJ against various opposition groups within the Northeast. Um, and these ranged from uh, secular groups led largely by civilian, uh, by uh, defectors from the Syrian Arab army, as well as Islamist groups and jihadist groups. And then by 2012, you had Nusra, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda franchise. And then later, I think in 2013, the Islamic State officially crossed the border. Um, officially, Nusra was part of the Islamic State initially, but then they had to split. And so, yeah, it, the fighting, pretty soon the opposition groups were forced out, both uh, largely due to the Islamic State. Um, of the Northeast. And so then the fighting became almost entirely um, the YPG, YPJ against the Islamic State. Mm. And um, I guess to, to go, um, just try to bring it up to the, the creation of the SDF, um, the Islamic State was advancing on uh, YPG controlled areas in uh, 2013, uh, most notably the city of Kobani, which is located sort of in the middle of Syria on the northern border, um, and this is east of the Euphrates. And Kobani is a, uh, a city that's almost entirely Kurdish. It um, is actually where Abdullah Ajalan had crossed the border into uh, Syria back in 1979, uh, and uh, used uh, sort of family ties to, uh, you know, uh, find a, a safe house and yeah. So Kobani is important uh, to the PYD. It's a, a strong base of support for the PYD. Historically, that 
area in Afrin are where the party's been strongest. It's been the weakest in the far northeast in uh, the Jazeera Pasika uh, province, where the other the pro Barzani Kurdish parties have been stronger. Mm. Um, so yeah, the Islamic State was advancing on um, on Kobani, and the battle took. It was a very very long. It started in 2013 and didn't uh, fully end until 2014. And this is where the U.S. first got involved, um, supporting the YPG in the defense of Kobani uh, through air power and through uh, supplying or dropping supplies. Um, this relationship also developed due to the, the Sinjar offensive in east, northeastern, northwestern Iraq, um, which uh, was when the Islamic State uh, committed a genocide against the Azidi um, religious minority, they are a Kurdish speaking uh, religious uh, sect, and the Islamic State uh, was uh, launched an offensive to basically try to wipe them out of this area. And this is where they, they were killing all the men and the women were captured and sold into sex slavery that the Islamic State had officially condoned and uh, brought back into practice. Um, mm. So the YPG had actually crossed the border into Iraq to come to the defense of the Azidis there. And this is when the very first uh, connections between the US who had created the anti-ISIS coalition and the, the YPG were formed. So after this relationship was established, the, um, the US, the YPG became the primary uh, partner force for the US's war against the Islamic State within Syria. And, from the end of the Kobani battle in, in 2014, all the way up to 2019, which is when the last piece of Islamic State territory was captured. Um, you had the US supporting the, uh, the YPG, and then by 2015, it became the SDF um, through air power, um, the deployment of special forces, and some, uh, I believe, Marines artillery uh, units. Um, and the, the cooperation became quite extensive and this is the the u.s is is seen um as the reason why the sdf was formed as opposed to just continuing with the ypg ypj it was attempting to create a um more representative uh, in an ethnic sense um body to uh carry out the the fight against the islamic state which a lot of most of the areas that the islamic state was controlling at this time were arab uh, populated so, so yeah, that in, in late 2015, they established um, the, the SDF. And I, initially, I think um, it was, it's hard to get a, a real sense in terms of demographic, demographic uh, balance. I think over time, it's become uh, increasingly more Arab um, through uh, the taking more Arab territory and then recruiting uh, more of the local population. Hmm. So. And is that recruiting from other groups or is that recruiting people that haven't previously been fighting? So initially it was through adding extra, adding new groups. Um, so there's several groups that had been entities prior to the creation of the SDF and some were, um, had always been aligned to the YPG. Um, you have the Asana did, Sanadid um, forces that are a tribal militia 
uh, of an Arab tribe that's that resides in um, northeastern Syria, the Shamar. And historically, the Shamar had always had close relations with uh, the Kurdish communities. Mm. Um, a Kurdish friend of mine was telling me that that was the only, the only times there'd be intra-Kurdish or inter-Kurdish Arab marriages um, in Hasika uh, back when uh, he was a kid would be between Shamar and <laughs> Kurds. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's an example of a group that was a longtime ally of the YPG and then was officially folded into the SDF, and it still maintains its um, sort of factional independence within the SDF. Um, then you've had the creation of new military structures. Um, you have the, the Mimbij Military Council, which Mimbij is a mostly Arab-populated area that's um, west of the Euphrates that the uh, white or at that point it was the SDF, the SDF in the US uh, captured from the Islamic State in 2016. And uh, they established through local groups that had been there. And then those groups kept uh, growing through recruiting locals that hadn't uh, been, uh, you know, officially, I don't know, fighting with them or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's an example of a group that's been formed since the creation of the, uh, the SDF that's mm -hmm. been added to it. It's a fascinating yet tumultuous history for the Kurdish people, especially in northern Syria. So it's very interesting to see how it's developed in the last few years as well. The Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. What do you think are the main challenges the SDF faces in its efforts to establish self-governance and promote stability in northern Syria? So the biggest challenge is that no one wants to recognize them internationally, um, no state. Um, and uh, that also means that also uh, includes Turkey that's actively seeking to to eradicate them. Um, so if you look at all the various actors that are involved in the, the Syrian conflicts and just the regional actors in general, you have the, the Syrian regime does not want this project to exist. It, it wants all of Syria to be under the Damascus government. Um, the opposition view, the armed opposition is um, very much, it's, it's a complicated relationship. Um, earlier in the war, there was some cooperation between the YPG and um, some of the opposition groups. Um, there was clashes um, and overall the, the, the political projects are not uh, compatible. The, the opposition does not want the, um, broadly speaking, does not uh, want the, the project, the PYD's project to, to exist and views it as a threat and views them as collaborators with the Assad regime. Um, and then Turkey views it as a, um, a serious threat to Turkish sovereignty, basically, just because it views it as an extension of the PKK. Um, the, the Barzani's in Iraqi Kurdistan view it as a challenger in, um, in terms of intra-Kurdish nationalist politics. Um, and then all the states that have Kurdish populations like Iraq and Iran 
aren't too happy about it either. I mean, Iraqi Kurdistan was sort of created, it was sort of a, a fluke. It was created through um, the US's, uh, you know, you had the Gulf War and the US created a no-fly zone in uh, Northern Iraq. And then after the US invaded, um, federal autonomy was written into the constitution. Um, so yeah, that's not gonna happen in, in Northern Syria. The US, despite um, collaborating or despite you know, being a, it's the main military supporter of the SDF does not politically recognize the uh, the administration in Northeast Syria. And I don't foresee it ever doing that just because it doesn't want to be seen as partitioning Syria. Fair enough. That makes a lot of sense from that perspective. And then um, I guess the SDF came to, or kind of broke into kind of the collective subconscious against the fight against ISIS. They, that's, the Kurdish issue kind of really came to the forefront in the last 10 years. H how would you assess the effectiveness of the SDF in the fight against ISIS? Well, it's because the fighting primarily took place between 2014 and 2019 when the US was involved. I think it's pretty hard to say what, um, yeah, like the, the effect of it, of, effectiveness of itself on it on the on its own um it's compared to other non-government uh military or militias basically that were formed um you know in the opposition it's it's very effective um basically because it's run by a uh, highly ideological political cadre um so it has cohesiveness and it has uh, you know, it has a very clear agenda, so it has appeal to certain segments of the Kurdish population. Um, so I think it's a much more cohesive entity than any of the opposition militias um, proved to be. I think it's so comparable, though, to some of the uh, jihadi groups mm -hmm. in terms of this dynamic. Um, in terms of military itself, I'm way more focused on political side of things, but it's, you know, light infantry, militia. Um, I don't, I think it would have definitely struggled without the U.S. to deal with the Islamic State, just given that the Islamic State, which is also, you know, was very cohesive, um, centrally organized um, uh, entity with appeal to people. Um, the the Islamic State was much, had much more resources because it controlled the oil and gas. It had tens of thousands of foreign nationals coming to fight the the foreign volunteers for the SDF is much smaller um so there are just a lot of advantages that the Islamic State had that the YPG back then did not have um yeah but the, the U.S. obviously helped a lot I mean the the amount of airstrikes is, that were carried out over these five years was massive hmm. and, and the U.S. Has, has also been training sorry uh hmm, the U.S. has been uh you know there's been a training mission going on since this relationship started mm. so that's been pretty key in professionalizing the uh the sdf mm. and how's the uh, relationship between the sdf and the united states led coalition maintained has, has there been any hiccups at any points or has it been smooth sailing um the main hiccup is <sighs> turkey um so you know turkey is a u.s ally it's a member of nato um, but Turkey um, has carried out, now it's carried out two operations against the SDF. 
Um, this was in 2018 and 2019, and its first direct military intervention into Syria in 2016 really has to be seen as an attempt to prevent the, the SDF from further expanding in the Aleppo province. Um, so that, that complicates the SDF-US relationship a lot because the US is not, it's never gonna be willing to uh, trade Turkey for the SDF. Um, you know, it, it's not gonna uh, end its relationship with Turkey. So therefore it has to sort of balance its uh, campaign against the Islamic State with Turkey's concerns about the SDF. And this, you know, most famously in 2019, you had Trump, um, but as Trump is was given to do, he like spoke on the phone with Erdogan and then decided like on a whim that he was going to withdraw um, the U.S. from Syria. This didn't actually happen. They withdrew from border regions and uh, maintained their presence further south and then along the Iraqi border. Um, but it did allow the Turks and their uh, proxy forces from the opposition to invade a large stretch of northeast Syria. Hmm. It's really impossible to talk about the SDF and northern Syria without getting into the Turkish issue, really. Mm -hmm. So could you explain Turkey's um, goals? Why? What is their issue? with the SDF and the Kurds? Um, so it's issue with the SDF is, is existence, basically. Um, it views the PKK and the SDF, et cetera, as the same thing, um, which, you know, there is overlap and there are PKK, active PKK cadres that are uh, involved in the SDF project, but it's, it's definitely more complicated than that. And the SDF's, uh, Orientation is completely towards Syria, towards uh, its project in Syria. And there's actually intra uh, issues within intra SDF issues that these are, you know, not well documented because it's very much behind the scenes, but there's like a, a very pro PKK trend within the SDF and then a more Syria local focus trend as well. Um, so yeah, that's Turkey's uh, primary, um, the primary motive behind this. Um, and Turkish policies changed over uh, the last 12 years. Initially, it was very much focused on regime change within Syria, on supporting the armed opposition and uh, uh, removing the, the Damascus government. It was one of the main suppliers of arms to the opposition uh, since the very beginning. Then in 2015, there was a series of events that occurred that really changed Turkey's focus. This was the, the direct uh, Russian intervention into Syria, which basically made regime change possible. And then you had the coup attempt in Ankara. There, there's a bunch of interlinked uh, events. There was some Islamic State bombings that were actually targeting the um, pro, P, uh, not the PKK, but the Kurdish civilian party, um, the HTP within Turkey that killed dozens of people. And then there was the breakdown of the PKK peace process. So uh, from the 2010s up to uh, 2015, I guess officially it was 2013 to 2015, uh, Erdogan was carrying out a peace process with the PKK. Um, this is tied to a lot of domestic things within Turkey, um, but that gets complicated 
then you have to talk about a lot of other stuff. But um, anyway, the peace process collapsed in 2015 and Erdogan uh, pivoted to, um, he, to protect his power. He formed an alliance with the far right nationalists within Turkey, the MHP. Um, this is the coalition that's, you know, they're, the election runoffs next week, and that's still the coalition, the mm. AKP and the MHP. And um, so this is when you see a change in the Syria um, policy, when uh, Turkey directly intervenes in northern Aleppo, um, which technically they were taking territory from the Islamic State. And there were there were serious battles around the city of Al-Bab in northern Aleppo um, against the Islamic State. But really, this was to prevent the SDF from expanding further west and connecting its uh, the Afrin region, which had always been under YPG and then SDF control, to uh, Minbij, which I'd mentioned earlier, which the SDF and the U.S. took in 2016. And so, um, yeah, that's when you really see this change. And when Turkey's policy in Syria, they ditched regime change and then went purely to uh, trying to take out the SDF. Yeah, Turkey's played such a huge role in the Syrian civil war. And I think it's only really just started to get the coverage that it deserves. Yeah, of the international actors, Turkey and Russia are definitely the most involved. The uh, mm. U.S. is a, a third to them. And Turkey, initially Turkey and Qatar and Saudi were the main regional backers. But over the years, it's sort of whittled down to... Qatar supports the opposition through Turkey, but Turkey is the primary actor. Hmm. And how has the SDF's relationship with Assad evolved? Yeah, so it's it's complicated, and I think it sort of changes depending on what region uh, you're talking about. Um, basically, you know, as I said earlier, they they pursued this third way path, so they didn't engage in like direct full-scale fighting with the regime. There have been clashes time to time, um, but these are usually pretty localized affairs. Like uh, someone at a, like a regime checkpoint will stop and harass an SDF member and then clashes break out and then it, it becomes a whole affair for a week or something. Um, the, uh, there's, so the SDF has several pockets within regime territory and the regime has several pockets within SDF territory. And um, the regime has been blockading. Mm. Um, it's unclear to me how much about a hard blockade there is. I think there's still some stuff going through, but some SDF territories in northern Aleppo have been under this blockade um, for a while now from the regime. And uh, this has like uh, made fuel supply very low and medical supplies uh, pretty low. Um, you see a lot of reports about about um, you know people and they can't get the treatment they they need um, medically because of these blockades. Um, yeah, so then uh, the the SDF has been for years now because of the Turkish threat really, and because the U.S. is not going to recognize them politically, um, and the U.S. mission is fundamentally about the Islamic State, and it's not going to be permanent. At some point, the U.S. is going to withdraw. The SDF has been undergoing negotiations with the regime to try to come up to come up with some sort of political solution between the two, where some vestiges of the civilian and the military side of the sides of the project are maintained, and some sort of autonomy, or at least cultural 
recognition for Kurds is um, is maintained. These these have been going on since I believe 2018, and uh, the regime's very inflexible. It has not been willing to uh, to grant any of these concessions. So these negotiations are kind of stuck. Um, but everything relies on these external factors. So I think if if Turkey is like actually threatens actually starts like invading the entire areas that are controlled by the SDF, you'd probably see them willing to concede more to the Assad regime. So how has the SDF dealt with the issue of ISIS prisons and detainees? Like, how does it, what kind of challenges do they face in terms of security and justice, I guess, in the region? Yeah, so this is a, a pretty massive problem because there's, Tens of thousands of Islam, former Islamic State fighters, as well as family members, even more, uh, you know, women and children that are under SDF or detained in SDF prisons and these sort of hybrid prison displaced persons camps. Um, and really, the SDF does not have the resources to deal with these. They're, uh, uh, the, the coalition's assisted uh, a bit. Some of these places have gotten U.S. funding. Um, and the U.S. is involved in training the prison guards. Um, yeah, but uh, it's it's a massive task that, that they're really ill-equipped to deal with. These people, the Islamic State, uh, former Islamic State fighters and their family members, um, some of them are from uh, third-party countries from uh, the West or um, from the former Soviet states. For the most part, um, or from Arab states, and a lot of times these people have been stuck in the prison camps because politically, you know, if if you're in the UK, it's um, it doesn't go very well to to say, oh, wait, let's like take them back. It's a mm. humanitarian issue, or it plays well to say we're not going to take them back. I think Shemaima so, uh, Begum is... was the fa famous one in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So this is really screwed over the uh, the SDF, the uh, Autonomous Administration, um, because they're stuck dealing with these people. Um, though a lot, the the majority of the um, former Islamic State fighters and family members are Iraqi or Syrian, um, and slowly they've been sending them, to, some of them to Iraq, returning them, repatriating them. Um, but then even even if all the Iraqi ones and all the other country, uh, other nationalities are leave, there'll still be tens of thousands of Syrians um, that they will continue to struggle dealing with. But it would be a big help if, if all the um, other countries repatriated their citizens. It's definitely an issue that we can't just ignore. Like, it's not just going to disappear. Yeah, yeah. And you saw... In uh, last year in January, ISIS carried out a massive attack on a prison in Hasaka City, in the I guess, second biggest city under SDF control. And this was a like very sophisticated, multi-pronged attack that um, included suicide bomb, uh, car bombs, and um, yeah, they basically broke into the prison. Were able to give some of the um, the inmates weapons some of them they'd like made machetes um too and this ended up going on for about a week the uh u.s got involved there's airstrikes going on um and the they were some of the inmates had escaped to a local residential neighborhood 
Um, so yeah, that was a big crisis um, back in, in January 2022. Mm. And you touched on it a little bit there, but could you elaborate more on the role of foreign fighters for both the Islamist groups and the SDF? Yeah, so numerically, there were way more foreign fighters uh, joining the, the jihadist groups in Syria. Um, I don't, I don't know the total figures, but I think it was, it was definitely in the tens of thousands. Mm. Um, as for foreign fighters for the SDF, you know, this is a, a topic that got a lot of attention. It's uh, sexy. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of writing about it. Overall, though, it was a fairly limited um, phenomenon. There's still uh, Western or non-local foreign fighters. Um, foreign fighters yeah uh, uh within the sdf ranks um i i have no idea how many i did presumably in the hundreds or yeah I, I can't imagine it's much more than that and these are mixed some of them were people that just joined because they were you know maybe former u.s service members or something and they wanted to go fight the islamic state um and then you had early on i think there was more of this or just like non-ideological people that went. And then you obviously had a big uh, leftist contingent. Um, you also do have some groups that are connected to the PKK that are not um, from Syria. Um, so you have the, um, I forget the full name or the, the acronym, but there's uh, several Turkish Communist Party uh, militias. Um, I think there's more than one. Um, that are active there. So these are Turks, some of them are Kurds um, that are Communist Party members there and uh, have, have fight under their own banner as part of the SDF. Mm. Um, and yeah, you have some other maybe groups of foreign fighters. I think there's some anarchist ones. Um, yeah. Overall, though, in terms of the actual conflict, these this phenomenon is like, I don't think it's that important. It's just uh, people like to talk about it. Yeah, it's definitely caught on a few times in the mainstream news and then just been rolled with, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And like people like, you know, anarchists or other people on the left like to, or mostly anarchists, like to uh, talk about it and compare it to Abraham Lincoln brigades in Spain <laughs> or similar stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think it's a fairly, yeah, insignificant to the, the actual conflicts in the SDF itself. Hmm. And then can you expand a little bit more on the SDF's approach for governance and its efforts to kind of bring, how would you say it, like uh, diversity into kind of the policy of the area? Mm -hmm. So officially, like the SDF does not control the area. It's the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. That's the official name. Um, and it's uh, it's a very sophisticated uh you know, it, is, it doesn't, it's not normal non-state actor armed group governance. Um, it's like executive committees um, and then there's political bodies all the way down to the, the village or the neighborhood um, where there, it is, um, there are like elections and there's voting going on on things, but there's also uh, at all these meetings, cadre members of, of the party um, are heavily involved in decision making down to the, the village uh, level and sit in on all these meetings. Um, yeah, and um, overall, it's 
they're relatively constricted uh, economically. It's the situation is not great, and it's been affecting governance and the ability to provide services. And um, I th overall, I've in the last couple of years been seeing more appears like more unrest and disillusionment with the governance itself. Um, overall, it's it relies on there's one border crossing with Iraqi Kurdistan that actually right now is closed. From time to time, the the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq um, will close the border due to political spats between overall the PKK and Barzani. What's thought to have happened is that the PYD blocked members of the other Kurdish parties from going to a inauguration ceremony for a museum that the uh, the Barzani family was opening. Um, and then in response, I mean, this, this is not fully confirmed. In response, the Kurdistan regional government uh, closed the border. And um, this the that border, there's a lot of aid that goes through. There's trade. Um, there's a lot of both uh, local and international civilian traffic. Uh, NGOs go through this border that are working in northern Syria. You have uh, people going back and forth. There's a lot of Syrian Kurds that um, are refugees in Iraqi Kurdistan. So you have people visiting family members or going for medical treatment. Um, you have uh, better, well, I've heard terrible things about the Kurdistan uh, uh, healthcare situation based on like insurance and stuff, but um, the treatment's better. Mm. Uh, you have more options there. Um, yeah, so that's that border. The border with Turkey is all closed. Um, yeah. And then you have the regime and border crossings with other with opposition controlled areas. And there's a lot of trade that goes on um, between these areas. Uh, that's really how uh, this is the project set anyway, economically viable. Um, the main resources at uh, its disposal that there's oil and gas in northern Syria. I don't know exactly what extent of the pre-war facilities are operational, but there's a significant amount that are operational. Um, and then grain, the uh, the Northeast Syria is the main grain um, cultivation region within uh, Syria. So yeah, they're they're trading these to the other areas specifically, or in particular, oil and gas. Mm. Um, but the, the sanctions that are placed on Syria overall. Um, have a significant effect on economic life in northern Syria too, because everything's there. Damascus is sort of its main outlet, and so the situation's pretty bad in in terms of the economy in Syria hmm. overall. And in your view, what are what are the prospects for the SDF in achieving its goals of devolved nationhood or autonomy within the Syrian state? Um. Not great overall, um, because the, there's just such um, harsh uh, international limitations. Um, just the the fact that basically no one no one wants to see like a, a federal situation like what you have in Iraq, where there's like a, a semi-independent Kurdish uh, region. I mean, they, they don't even say that they want that specifically. Um, and you know, the, the Syrian government's not going anywhere. The, the, ever since the Russian support, it's, uh, clear that the, the Assad regime is going to remain. And now you have normalization going on between Arab countries and 
that had cut off relations with Syria back uh, when the war started in response to humanitarian uh, violations by the government. Um, they're normalizing ties. Hmm. So yeah, the, the international climate is not favorable to the SDF. Uh, locally, you know, it, it is, um, you know, it has upward, anywhere upwards of 100,000 fighters. Um, and there's a lot of people heavily invested in the project, both on the military and civilian sides. So it's not like it would disappear overnight, um, but it has to eventually come to some agreement with Damascus and Damascus is uh, has leverage and does not want to give up concessions. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today, Alex. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's AK McKeever. Um, and then my Substack is also akmckeever.substack.com. Um, definitely, if you're interested in any of this, check check that out. I've been doing weekly newsletters uh, of uh, weekly events going on both within the SDF-controlled areas and then within opposition-controlled areas. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, STJ is the organization I work part-time with, Syrians for Jews and Justice. Uh, you can find them uh, on Twitter, their website. I couldn't recommend uh, having a look at your things anymore. It's really good work to see day-to-day -day what's going on in northern syria no oh, thanks i appreciate that no problem whatsoever and you can find us at modern insurgent on instagram twitter tiktok and youtube where you can find our latest documentary about bawak b-o-a-k a, a anarcho-communist organization in ukraine currently fighting against the russian invasion so go check that out and thank you very much everyone the Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported. reported